just a couple of days ago, long after we'd chosen our congregational introit for this morning, I learned that folk singer Guy Carawan died last week. On an April night in 1960, Carawan stood before a group of black students in Raleigh, North Carolina, and sang a little-known folk song with lyrics composed by a black Methodist minister and put to the tune of an 18th century Catholic hymn. The simple song became an anthem that would echo into history, sung at the Selma to Montgomery marches in 1965, in apartheid-era South Africa, in international demonstrations in support of the Tiananmen Square protesters, at the dismantled Berlin Wall, and beyond. The song was, We Shall Overcome. We shall overcome. How many times has it been sung in churches and halls and on streets by people putting their bodies and their safety on the line, maybe even their lives? If singing alone could solve the problems of racism and privilege still plaguing our nation and our world, then I guess we haven't sung the song enough times. As I said last night, the purpose of art is to rearrange us, but perhaps we need something more than a song to rearrange us, especially given the long, long history of humanity's inclination to insist that there's an us and a them and that we need to exclude or press or even eliminate them. We encountered that inclination in last night's concert and, of course, again in this morning's passage in Acts. These verses come at the end of a longer story, an important story. One day during afternoon prayer, a Roman centurion named Cornelius has a vision in which he sees an angel who instructs him to send for the apostle Peter, who's staying in the nearby town of Joppa. At the same time, Peter falls into a trance while praying on a rooftop. He sees the heavens open and something like a large sheet coming down, filled with all kinds of creatures. Then he hears a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. The problem is that the creatures in the sheet are not kosher. They are unclean, according to Jewish dietary laws. So Peter protests, No way, God! But the voice says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happens three times. Peter doesn't get it, but he's sent to meet the centurion Cornelius, and that's when he puts the pieces together. God accepts Cornelius, the Gentile. In a sermon Peter gives on Cornelius' front lawn, he makes the astounding confession, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Normally, this phrase is interpreted in the context of the church. God welcomes everyone into the church, and so should we. Fair enough, the story comes from the first days of the early church, and Peter's confession is the beginning of a huge change in direction for the church. Up until this point, Christianity had been essentially a Jewish sect. But limiting this to the church misses a couple of things. In this morning's verses, Peter realizes 
that the Gentiles have received the gift of the Holy Spirit before being baptized. The Spirit will blow where it will. As the Gospel of John puts it, the Spirit is not for the church to hand out or control. So while it remains important for the church to be welcoming and hospitable and inclusive, the church does not and never has cornered the market on the Spirit of God. We see the Spirit already at work outside the bounds of traditional notions of who is in and who is out in the New Testament, where the Samaritans and the woman of mixed heritage, the Syrophoenician woman, are included in Jesus' ministry, not to mention those tax collectors and sinners. And we see it in the Old Testament as well, when God chooses to save the entire city of Nineveh from destruction, even though God's prophet, Jonah, does everything he can to prevent it. In the context of our world, in which people struggle daily for survival, and survival depends on whether they are us or them. Limiting the amazing statement that God shows no partiality to the church seems arrogant. As though it's the church that has the privilege of saying who is welcome and included in God's mercy, God's grace, God's concern, and God's loving embrace. Privilege. It's It's a word we're coming to understand better in the United States. This past winter, in the wake of the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, our congregation sponsored a four-week study on racism and privilege, and it was eye-opening. Since then, we've seen the deaths of more young black men at the hands of police, most recently in Baltimore. Clearly, we have a problem. God shows no partiality, but Americans as a nation do. A little video circulating the internet this past week reveals startling statistics. Something is wrong when thousands of resumes are mailed to employers with identical information and the black-sounding names are 50% less likely to get a call back. Something is wrong when black people are charged prices roughly $700 higher than white people when buying cars. Something is wrong when black drivers are twice as likely to get pulled over by the police and black male teens are 21 more times likely to be killed by cops than their white counterparts. Something is wrong when black people are incarcerated at nearly six times the rate of white people. The biggest, most insidious aspect of privilege is that white people can choose not to think about all this if we don't want to. God shows no partiality. So what are we to do? Pray, certainly, but an article by a Baltimore writer reminds us that prayer might be kind, thoughtful, sympathetic, but it's not a substitute for activism. What's needed rather than sympathy is empathy, which, the writer points out, is dangerous. If you empathize with people, that feeling might influence you to act, and that's threatening to structures that are meant to maintain the status quo. It is Mother's Day. 
on Mother's Day, maybe it's a place for us to begin in remembering that every one of those young black men killed by police had a mother. In a campaign started after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, young black men were photographed holding up signs that said, am I next? Perhaps today of all days, we might imagine and feel the pain and fear of the woman who could hold up a sign that says, is my son next? I ran across a wonderful letter from a mother to her son, explaining just how empathy and compassion lead to action. On the eve of her son Chase's first day of third grade, Glennon Doyle Melton wrote to him about Adam, a boy she knew when she was in third grade. Adam was different. He wore funny clothes, hung his head, never looked at anyone. The other kids teased him. Melton never teased him herself, but she also never told the other kids to stop either. She never spoke to him, never invited him to play or sit next to her at lunch. He always ate alone. He must have been very lonely. She tells her son, I think God puts people in our lives as gifts to us. The children in your class this year, they are some of God's gifts to you. So please, treat each one like a gift from God, every single one. She continues, Baby, if you see a child being left out or hurt or teased, part of your heart will hurt a little. Your daddy and I want you to trust that heartache. Your whole life, we want you to notice and trust your heartache. That heartache is called compassion and it's God's signal to you to do something. It's God saying to you, Chase, wake up. One of my babies is hurting. Do something to help. Whenever you feel compassion, be thrilled. It means God is speaking to you, and that is magic. It means God trusts and needs you. Sometimes, Melton says, compassion might lead Chase to tell the teaser to stop it and to ask the teased kid to play. Other times it might lead him to tell a teacher, asking for help for someone who is hurting is not tattling, says Melton. It's doing the right thing. Then she tells Chase that she and his dad don't care if he's the smartest or fastest or coolest or funniest if he gets straight A's or is popular with the girls, they already love him as much as they possibly could. The reason they send him to school is to practice being kind and brave. She writes, kind people are brave people. Brave is not something you should wait to feel. Brave is a decision. It is a decision that compassion is more than fear more than fitting in, more than following the crowd. Trust me, baby, it is, she says. It is more important. As a congregation, and in our lives as individuals, may we continue to wrestle with what it means that God shows no partiality. May we grow in our trust that God would sign a letter to each and every one of us the way Melton signed her letter to her son. 
She signed it, I love you so much that my heart might explode. Enjoy and cherish your gifts, and thank you for being my favorite gift all the time. Love, Mama. And may we wake up, notice when someone is hurting, treat each person like a gift from God, and do something. As he signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, Lyndon Johnson was prophetic when he said, even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement that reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American blacks to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. He continued, their cause must be our cause too because it is not just blacks, but really it is all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And then President Johnson added, and we shall overcome. May it be so for you and for me. Amen. <laughs>